all just what I was going to do with the book of Ezra and uh, have, a little, have, have a little fun with that graphic. So it's just, just, this is a book, uh, marriage is involved here, and we're going to find along the way uh, to what extent marriage is involved. But, but even what I just said uh, for the kids about God, hearing God's word, doing it, and telling others, well, that was really what Israel was all about, isn't it? That's not Ezra's call. That's the call on this nation that God had created humanity. Humanity fell. Humanity followed away in rebellion against God and his will and his intention, his desire, and lost fellowship, relationship with him in the process. And yet God determined to bring people back. He began with a man named Abraham. And through Abraham, he would raise up a people. And out of that people first, they would experience and God would demonstrate his redemption, his rescue, his salvation to this people and through this people. And as that people, the people of Israel, as they experienced God's rescue, God's redemption, God's salvation, they would demonstrate it and share it with all the world. That was the plan. And so as the Old Testament continues through Israel's history, as we've seen it on Route 66, one book after another through the Bible, we find that Israel did not live out that drama of redemption that well. That the story starts with creation and fall, and it moves to redemption and exodus, and we're redeemed in order to worship the book of Leviticus. And yet, God's people so easily wander from worship. They don't just take a snow day. It's every day, and it's ongoing that they're not in worship. It's not a matter of a, what, a day of the week. It's a matter of a lifestyle. And we see the life of Israel wandering. They cannot tell others. They cannot demonstrate. And so they are epitomized by a prophet named Jonah, aren't they? A prophet who doesn't even want to go tell the nations. He's got nothing to tell. He's more concerned about himself which is contrary to the message of God. It's contrary to God's heart. God is more concerned about us. He's so much more concerned about us that he would give himself in the person of his son to die in our place, to be our Passover lamb, our rescue, our salvation. He would give himself for us in order to give us his life and relationship with him again. So, Israel continues to wander away from worship, away from relationship with God, into idolatry. There's no difference from them to all the rest of the peoples in the world who are fallen and, and departed from God, separated from him. And so God sends Israel out of this promised land, this land that he had given them. He sends them off into exile. If you are as the nations, if there's no difference between you, if you will not be my people, then go to them. And see how fulfilling and satisfying that is. And it's not. It's miserable. In fact, Israel's idolatry, by and large, as a nation, is purged from them during that time of their exile within Babylon, where they're surrounded by idols until they're sick of them. Israel continues to have other problems later in their history, but they don't have a problem with idolatry anymore. And, and yet there comes a time, and so, and, and so the prophets are warning Israel, the prophets are calling Israel back to relationship with God, finally they're predicting this exile, this punishment that's going to come upon them because they will not hear God. And yet at the end of that, after 70 years, they're going to be restored. 
And that's what's called the post-exilic, post-exile, after the exile period. That's where we are in our Route 66. We have gone through the Old Testament history. We have gone through the prophets. We've even gone through those prophets that spoke after Israel returned from Babylon, after that 70-year exile. They're back in the land. They're to rebuild the temple. And the prophets Haggai and Zechariah are speaking to them. And now we come to the last three historical books of the Old Testament. And those are the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And the chronology here gets a little confusing, so I did include in your notes on the back of your insert, just for later uh, as you're comparing, and want to keep Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther in your thinking, where is this happening? Because sometimes it's interesting the different things that are happening and what else is going on in the world, because that's the context that these people are living out a life of faith in. It's not always easy times. So I laid that out for you, that history of where Haggai and Zechariah, where, um, where Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, where they all fit into this time frame after the Babylonian captivity. Post-exilic period, we call it. So here we are in, in, in God's redemptive history before Christ comes, before Christ comes and dies for us, but the prophets have long anticipated and the prophets have concluded that there's a problem with Israel. There's a problem with all of us. God gave them a law to keep, and yet they could not keep it. God gave them a law. God gave them a structure, and yet still they rebelled against him. And that structure and that law and commandments and ordinances. And both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah before the captivity, Ezekiel at the very beginning of the captivity says, this isn't going to work. These people will not be able to keep the law of God. God says, I will, I will give them a new heart. I will put my spirit within them. I will take my law and I will not write it merely on tablets of stone, but I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will make a new covenant and I will, by my spirit, I'm going to write my law onto their hearts. I'm going to put my law on the inside so that they are able to live it out. I'm going to put within them what they do not have on their own. There's a new covenant coming and that's the means by which Israel is going to be able to now you move ahead a little bit in Route 66. We haven't gotten here yet. But we move ahead a little bit to the Gospels. And what does Jesus say? We celebrate at the Lord's table month by month. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you that Christ in his death and resurrection for us has established that new covenant and has changed everything, have given us a new life. That's a life that's essential. And you cannot... You cannot please God, walk with God, have the good hand of God upon you, aside from walking with God in that new covenant by his grace, by his mercy upon you. One of the ways that this will play out is in marriage, the book of Ezra. It'll play out in the book of marriage that how is it going in marriage? We could stop and take inventory. Pastor Evan said we could stop and talk about the blessings of God and, and then we could stop and talk about marriage. And those might be the same. Uh, they might not be quite the same. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands here. Okay? But we're, we're going to see in the book of Ezra that... that Living by God's grace in this new covenant also, that is the way for marriage to be what it is that God intends it to be. And it's all going to climax in, a, in, a, in an issue regarding marriage. But first, before we get there, before we get to the core of the book of Ezra, which actually ends somewhat unsatisfactorily, 
I want to I go back and I want to review just chapter by chapter what's happening. There's a huge setup. The book of Ezra has a six-chapter prologue. So you know that background is important. All of that six chapters, or almost all of it, is before Ezra. He's giving us the history up until he comes. Laying the stage, so to speak. So, but six chapters of that, and then we only have chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 left you know it must be important. So let's give a little bit of time to the background. I'm going to put the headings right up here on the screen. Go ahead and put those up. Don't worry about writing all this down. You have chapter headings in your Bible. You have paragraph headings and things. So don't get distracted by that. That's just to keep me on track and from talking too long. Everybody said amen. All right. So the book of Ezra begins in chapter 1, as most of the books do. In chapter 1 and verse 1, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Jeremiah said, 70 years and they're going to return, and so it happened. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus the king. God's in charge. Isn't that good news? God's in charge, even of Cyrus the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. He wrote it down. That's going to be important later. It's a good thing he did. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Cyrus wants them to go back and rebuild this temple in Jerusalem so that there they will also remember to pray for him. He's confident that prayers to the God of Israel on his behalf will be helpful to him. And so he, he, he issues this decree, and the people are allowed to return. In chapter, chapter uh, 2, we actually name names. One of the things, that the part of his decree, he said, and take all this gold with you, take this silver with you, take all of these treasures from the temple, and these articles that are used in worship in the temple, take all of these things back with you so that you can worship in the temple when you get there. Then chapter 2, a whole bunch of people go. Their name, the family names are all recorded there. And we're not going to go through them all. But uh, there's about 50,000 of them. There's about 50,000 people and there's only about 1,200 horses and camels and 7,000 mules. So there's not even 10,000 beasts of burden among them all. And you know some of the horses and camels were probably for the important people to ride on. So the 7,000 mules are supposed to carry all of these 50,000 people's stuff. Now, how do you think that went? I think a lot of people were carrying their own stuff, right? So this was not an easy journey, but they were going back to Jerusalem. They were returning from exile. God was keeping his promise. It's a new age. It's a new era. Captivity has ended. We're back to Jerusalem. We're finally up to Jerusalem. God is going to finish what he began. The promises that he made to us are going to come true. This is an exciting time. Did you feel it? Oh, you're just sitting there. This is big! Okay, so 50,000 people return, 537 B.C., and they arrive in chapter 3. When the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the towns. The people gathered at one place in Jerusalem. Then arose, uh, the, then arose Jeshua, the son of Je- Josadak, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. And they kept, it says in verse 4, they kept the Feast of Booze, or the Feast of Tabernacles. They arrive in the seventh month, and there are feasts of Israel to celebrate in the seventh month. I think the Feast of Trumpets has been fulfilled by them gathering there. 
So now they've got the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths celebrates gathered together with God in his land, in his capital, in his city, Jerusalem. The, the, the Day of Atonement cannot yet be celebrated. They're there to build the temple, and once they build the temple, and it has a Holy of Holies where the priest can enter in and sprinkle the blood that covers that broken law, and their sins are covered and atoned for. That can't happen yet. There's no temple built. And so they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and they begin building, rebuilding the temple. The, 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 the chapter closes, chapter 2. For God is good, and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. God will keep his promises. His steadfast love continues. His mercies are new every morning. And these people can feel it. They can feel it. This is just like the Exodus 2. This is just like being called up out of Egypt and, and, and set free at last. And then you get to chapter 4. And they're in the midst of construction, and they're building, and they're hammering, and they're sawing, and they're cutting, and they're putting stuff together. And when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached. And the opposition starts. And look the way it starts. It starts first, they approached Zerubbabel, the head of the father's houses, and said to them, Let us build with you. We worship God as you do. We've been sacrificing to him ever since the days that the king of Assyria left us here. And he, when the, he took the northern tribes out and he, and he, and he, and he brought in these other peoples. And there was a, so there was a great mixing of peoples in the northern part of what used to be Israel. What was also now known as Samaria. And uh, this mixed people, they worshipped a bit like Israelites. They followed some of the, the sacrifices of Moses because when they got into that land and they, they had all kinds of troubles, they said, well, whose God lives here? How could we serve the God that lives here so we won't have trouble? And they began going through some of the motions. But it was, just, it was going through religious motions trying to appease a God by the things that we do. And it, it wasn't successful, but the people of God who are back, who've been brought back into this land by God's promise answer them and say, no. Zerubbabel and the rest of the heads said, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our good God. This is our work that God has given us to do. The work that God has given the church in the same way. The work of mercy and love that God has given us to do is not for others to do. It's not given to the government to do in the same way that it's given us to do. The, the work of the proclamation of the gospel is given us to do. God doesn't even give that to angels. He gives that to us. And there is a good work that God has given us to do that he does not have plan B. That this is the plan. There is no alternate option. There is no second or third choice. We are God's plan by which the word of his cross is going to be told to others, to the people around you. So this is our work. God has given it to us, and that didn't make them very happy. So then begin to, they, they bribed the counselors. They bribed the guys who were the advisors to the king back in Persia. And they caused all kinds of trouble, and they probably came in and did vandalism at night, and they, 
They, uh, they wrote letters back to the king and, and um, all kinds of harassment all the way through that time. And so the people were discouraged and the building ceased. And then it goes on to, in fact, this didn't only just happen then when they first returned. Later on it happened in later Persian kings all the way up into the time of Esther and all the way up even to the time of Ezra about 60 some years later. They're still writing letters and they write a letter and they send it to the king, the king whom Ezra serves. And they complain about these Israelites. Now they finished their temple. Now they're building walls. And the king writes back and says, well, make them stop. They said, they don't have permits for all of this. And they go in and they start taking down names. And well, so it's a problem. And in the midst of the opposition, the construction is interrupted. And verses 6 to 23, verses 6 to 23, when you read through the book of Ezra, you get confused. Because verses 6 to 23 are parenthetical and they're looking further ahead. And Ezra is making this point. This is why it's important. It's why he does it. But our paragraphing in some of our Bibles gets kind of confusing. It looks like it all runs together. But he inserts this later episodes right into the middle of this in order for you to get the picture that the opposition that they first faced is just like the opposition later that Ezra faced. That this opposition to God's work in the world will continue, and we're going to have to go forward in spite of it. All right, so there's that opposition, and yet, chapter 5, they continue building, they're allowed to continue rebuilding, and there's great provision given to it. There's, there's a decree from King Darius in chapter 6, and the temple is finished and dedicated, and when they finish and dedicate the temple in verse 19 of chapter 6, the returned exiles keep the feast of Passover when they have a temple, and when they are celebrating, notice what their celebration is around. The celebration is focused on Passover. The celebration is focused on God's redemption, that God has rescued us up out of Egypt. Free, free, we're free at last. God has returned us. God has restored us. We have have built again a temple to his name. And it centers around redemption. It centers around Passover. That ought to be the focus ongoing. That always ought to be the center of the worship of God's people. The, the, The center is not merely on his manifold blessings to us. The center of worship of God is on what God has done for us in the person of his son. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That we have a new life lived in him because of his death on the cross on our place. And that is the center of our worship. That is the center of our worship, not only here in a church on Sunday morning, in the songs that we sing, in the word that we read. That's the center of our worship in life. Christ died for me. This day I live for him who loved me and gave himself for me. The center is Passover. The center is worship, and we get to chapter 7. After this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sererah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, son of... Okay, Ezra's got a long family history here. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the law, Lord, the, the God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. God's favor was on him. Now, that's intriguing because within five years of Ezra departing to go and assist the people who were in Jerusalem, 
and to help them and to bring more gold and silver from King Artaxerxes. Within five years, sometime in the last five years, we don't know just when, those people, the governors in the land that opposed the temple, had again been writing letters. And Artaxerxes had again written back to them saying, yes, they're a rebellious lot. They've got a history of rebelling against kings in the past, so no, don't let them build any wall. Now later, Nehemiah is going to come by this, and be allowed by the same king to help them build the wall and secure the city. But Artaxerxes has just decreed in recent years, in the last couple of years, against the people of the land, the people of Israel who are in the land. And yet now... Ezra has apparently approached him and he's given Ezra his blessing to go to the people to take more Israelites with him and even more treasure from the king of Persia. It might be something like this because the king later says, you know, don't hinder them, don't give them a hard time, let them do what they're supposed to do because we don't want their God to be angry with the king of Persia or his sons. It may be that Ezra as he has, has studied God's word, he has described to the king of Persia, king of Persia, something like Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. You could be in trouble, my friend. God is with these people. And you have resisted what God has sent them back to do. And it might be, if you, if you are hindering their worship at their temple, that they are there in order to pray for the kings of Persia, like Cyrus had said. And they're not praying for you these days. And maybe the king gets a little nervous. And maybe that's part of the background. But it's a delicate political time for Ezra to be the servant of God, proclaiming the word of God to these people. That's the point I want to make out of chapter 7. And yet he goes back. And it gets kind of tricky. Okay, chapter 8 again. We have a whole list of all the people that go back with him. And uh, there's about, I think this. If you count up and you try to make estimates, there's 1,500 men or, or, or close to 2,000 men. And so with families, they estimate five, 7,000 roughly people that return with Ezra at this time, roughly 10% of the first return. And so there's a list of them in chapter 8. And first Ezra gathers them to a river just as they're on their way. They're just starting out and they camp for several days and he takes inventory, he finds out, hey, we need Levitical priests. If we're going to help the work of the temple, we need priests, and we're not bringing any. So they go and they send word out, hey, he needs to add some priests to the party. So they add some priests to the party, and they all go together. But also, they have another problem. And so they fast for three days. They fast and pray for three days. You know what it is? They're traveling with all of this gold and all of the silver, and there's not that many of them as before. There's not 50,000 traveling together. Now, you may think, well, it's still a pretty big group, but they've got a lot of gold. They've got a lot of silver. They could get robbed along the way. And yet, Ezra says specifically, I could not... Oh, here we go. In verse 22 of chapter 8, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers or horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had already told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. He said, I've already told the king that God is with us. I've already told the king that God will protect us. How can I ask the king now for soldiers? Ezra has skin in the game. Ezra has put his money where his mouth is, so to speak. Ezra has stepped up and, and declared that I believe God's word to be true, so I'm going to step forward in light of that. 
We are going to trust this enterprise to God. And not just we're going to trust it to God so we'll wait and see what happens. No, we're going to go forward at risk to ourselves if God doesn't come through. There's a life of faith lived there. We're going to do what God has set before us, and yet we realize we're going to have to trust God to do it. I don't have the means to. We cannot protect ourselves, and we are not going to ask the king for soldiers because we've told them that God is with us. We're going to have to live like it. We're going to have to live like we believe it. And so they press on in that. We're going to trust God to take care of his treasure. Okay? Oh, but then they get to chapter 9, and God's treasure is in danger. Look at chapter 9. After these things have been done and they, they arrive there, they're very careful with all the gold and silver. They weigh it all out and they turn it in and, and the right amount that was weighed out when they left, it's weighed again and they, everybody's giving the right amount. Nobody's keeping a few ounces of gold back for themselves, you know, in case the stock market crashes or something. They're, they're all, um, they're, they, they turn it all over. This is God's. But there's another problem in chapter 9. After those things have been done, the officials approached me, Ezra, and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has, been, has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. What's the issue here? Well, at very, very plain face, the issue is Israelites, contrary to the law of Moses, have married non-Israelites, Canaanites and Hittites and Perizzites and Jebusites and all of them. And they've intermarried. But that's not the problem. That's not the problem. Is it absolutely forbidden for an Israelite to marry a non-Israelite? What about Ruth, the Moabitess? What about Rahab from the city of Jericho? Both of them are in line in the, in the, um, in the family history of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. There's no problem there. That's not the point. But both of them joined themselves by faith to the God of Israel. The problem here is not ethnicity. The problem is not that God has a hang-up of people with different ethnic backgrounds being married. The problem here is faith. That they are going, getting carried away into the abominations of the people. Let me see. Look, uh, here we go. The, uh, in, verse, in, in chapter 9 still, I'll read from verse uh, 11, I think it is. The land that you are entering... To, Okay, they were told in the past in the law, take possession of it. It is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands and their abominations, their idolatry, their serving of idols and demons behind them in terrible ways. In verse 14, shall we break God's commandment again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? The issue is not ethnicity. The issue is idolatry. The issue is that those who believed in the one true God are joining themselves in marriage to those who did not, to those who served other gods. 
If, if the foreign wife had been like Ruth, who had said, your God will be my God. If the foreign wife had been like Rahab, who joined herself and her hope and her future to the God of Israel, who would take down Jericho and who would, who would advance this people Israel. She joined herself to them and their God. But that, that didn't happen here. So they were being led astray again into the idolatry of the peoples of the land, the very thing God had guarded them against in the past, and the very point at which Israel had failed. Let me put it this way. They have stumbled again into the sin of Samson and Solomon. Maybe it was a matter like Samson of saying, I don't care what she believes. I don't care if she goes to church. I don't care if she believes in God or not. I want her for me. That was Samson's issue, and it led to his downfall. The collapse of the Davidic empire, the Davidic dynasty, began when Solomon became, began taking wives from the nations around. He was, he was making political marriages. I will marry, I will take a, a daughter of this king as my wife, and that king as my wife, and I will secure their ongoing relationship with me. They're not going to attack me when I have married their daughter. And he did that all over the place, but... He was such a kind, benevolent king that he allowed these daughters of kings that he married from the lands around them, he allowed them to bring their worship with them, to bring their idols with them, to set them up, and they made their way even into the temple. And God's people were led away from God to idols and the demons behind them. And that's what had ultimately led to the exile. And now it's a new era. It's a new age. It's a new day. God's people have returned from exile, and yet, it's the same thing. The same thing has happened again, and Ezra despairs. Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God in verse 10, or chapter 10. The people are weeping bitterly. We have broken faith with our God. We have broken faith with our God. Ezra says, I'm embarrassed. I have nothing to say. God, I'm embarrassed even to come into your presence. What are we going to do? And chapter 10 ends with the assembly over a three-month period. Each of these, and there are a hundred that are listed. You say a hundred out of the 50,000 people that were there. That's not a lot of marriages, but... It was, this was the first step back to what had caused Israel to be ruined before. And God is purging it out very early in the process. God takes this sin very seriously. God takes this spiritual diluting very seriously. And yet, sin has its consequences, doesn't it? You see these marriages torn apart. You see families torn apart. And the tragic line at the end of Ezra, all these, he lists these hundred people, all of these married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. And yet these families are torn apart. And you say, how can this be? Is that the way it ends? Is that the way the book of Ezra ends? Yes. Yes, it is. It's a terrible ending. It's a horrible ending. We're not satisfied with that ending. We shouldn't be satisfied with that ending. But what does it have for us? It's got something for us. Ezra ends that way because that's the only way that Ezra can end. Ezra studied the law so that he would do it and he would tell it to the people, but the people couldn't keep it any better than Ezra could keep it fully himself. Ezra wasn't guilty of this then, but he was guilty of others. But the people could not keep the law. 
and they would not keep the law. That's why. That's why there had to be a new covenant. That's why Jeremiah had already said. That's why I put at the bottom of your notes, I put that, that quote from Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8 is making a commentary on the new covenant out of the book of Jeremiah. If that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have looked for a second covenant, a new covenant. But showing its limitations, God says to them, Look, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers because they did not continue in my covenant. They could not. The fault was with them. I will put my laws in their minds and I will inscribe them in their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, the people are departing again. They're not, God is not going to be their God again. Other idols are going to be their gods instead. And that's what God cannot allow. And yet, all the law does is push them away. All the law does is separate the guilty from God. That's all Ezra could do when Ezra came back to Jerusalem and found sin among the people. We don't want Ezra to come in here today. We don't, Ezra, we don't want Ezra to come in and start naming our secrets and pointing them out and causing people to, to go out the door. No, actually a better than Ezra has come. Ezra determined to study the word of God so that he would do it and he could teach it. He could proclaim God's word to the people. A better than Ezra has come. What do I mean by that? A better than Ezra has come. A better than Ezra has come in in that Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ did not come with the word of God. Jesus Christ came as the word of God. He was the very word of God, the manifestation of God. The word was with God and the word was God and the word came and dwelt among us. And we saw him and touched him and heard him. And he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He was the very person of God in the flesh. He didn't just learn of the word. He didn't just study the word. He was the word. Like Ezra, he came to do it, but in ways that Ezra never could. Of Jesus it is said, behold, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I come to do thy will, O God. And even at the end of his life, when there he is in the garden, what does he pray? Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. And that will was that he would die in our place for our sins. You know what Hebrews 10 says about him always doing the will of the Father? In the scroll of the book, it is written of of me, Jesus says, to do your will, O God. Hebrews 10 comments on that and says, By this will we have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He who came to do the will of God for us who could not keep it perfectly. He came to do that will for us and so to show us the very word and message of God at a whole different level. He came to show us, to open up to us, to show us the heart of God, to show us the word of God, to show us the gospel of God, that God so loved the world that he gave his son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, Ezra came, but Ezra coming in the law could only tell the people what they must do and what they must not do. And if they could not measure up to that law, they would be separated from God. A better than Ezra has come. 
A better than Ezra who is the very word of God, the very expression of God, the one who would do the will of God who would die in our place. The one who in dying for our place would open up to us and show us the will and the heart of God in a way that we had not fully seen it before. Now some other practical things that Ezra teaches us as well. One of those, I'm I'm, going to pick just one. There's a bunch of places I could go here. Well, I might pick two, but I'm going to start with one. And that is why I chose these slides that I have up here today. The reason that I have those slides is so easily we falter. We have to choose to follow. That's, what, that's, that's the point of Esther. That's the point that Ezra is making. Ezra is saying we have to choose. We will easily be led astray. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Ah, there's a new covenant. But easily. And one of the places this word plays out, like us, is in marriage. Now, Ezra is not telling us, well, if I'm married then to an unbeliever, I, I, I should get a divorce. Is that what Ezra's saying? No, we're under a new covenant. If you want to run back to the law to, to find your basis for divorce here, then you're going to run back to the law for everything else, all of its condemnation upon you. No wonder a new covenant where God tells us very clearly as believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if you find yourself now married to an unbeliever and you know the Lord is Savior, well, you pray for your spouse and you live out the love of Christ before them because you desperately want them to share in the grace of God that you've experienced. There's no license here to leave. There is a, there is a call, an urgency to pray. But the point I wanted to make is, is that worship... In Ezra, and worship for us does not merely occur in the assembly. One of the most important places of worship occurs within marriage. And this is why I was so excited to have marriage team together when we were doing the book of Ezra. So marriage team will be coming, but reminding again that, that, that one of the places where we worship is in the midst of our marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 makes it clear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So wives, respect your husband. Submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, Ephesians 5 says. In each direction, husband and wives, together as we unpack that, we submit ourselves to one another in love and respect in ways that show the glorious grace of God. In ways that show the giving of one for the other, there's nothing that demonstrates redemption better than in marriage where two inherently selfish people devotedly give of themselves for the best of the other person. That is not just the right thing to do. That is not just a helpful marriage tip. That is an instruction and a call to worship. Because when I show the redemptive, self-sacrificing, giving love of God in marriage, when I show it in the midst of marriage where you wouldn't expect to find it, you'd expect to find these two pulling each other apart and, and blowing up because they're different and they each want their own way. But when they will each give their way for the sake and the good of the other, there is something of the love, the redemptive love of Christ being shown of Christ who gave himself for us. Marriage is one of the places that we worship. We can agree with Ezra to that extent, that marriage, if my faith does not work in marriage, where then does it work? If it doesn't work in the reality of that closest relationship, where does my faith work? 
making two self-centered sinners, devoted to others. That's God's transformation. Marriage is worship when we experience and demonstrate in an accurate portrayal, an increasingly accurate portrayal of God's sacrificial love for us. Worship before God is not a matter of church. It's a matter of choices. So easily we falter. So easily we will wander and go our own way. We must choose to follow day by day, making those choices based on God's gracious restoration of a ruined people. That God would restore these people. God can restore me. You know, Paul, Paul wraps up the gospel. He spends 11 chapters in the book of Romans declaring how good God has been to us. And then he gets to chapter 12 and he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. You may feel like you're in that chapter 9 or 10 of Ezra. You may feel like I have blown it. You may feel like I don't measure up. And choices that I've made and failings where I have failed have disqualified me. And I'll hang around the fringes, but I could not be in the center. I dare not draw near to God because I can't measure up. And I would tell you today that a greater than Ezra has come. You don't have to measure up. I don't have to measure up in that way. I am to receive of his grace. And then I can give my life as an offering out of love for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. We do that in the offering. We give something out of ourselves, not because we have to, not because we're required to, but because I give back to the Lord out of something out of what he's given me. And that's life. That's a life of worship, whether it's in marriage or in any other aspect of our lives. Would you pray with me now? Let's pray a prayer of, of devotion, of commitment, a prayer of offering, of giving of ourselves to God to follow him. Lord, we would do this in receiving an offering to you. But Lord, as we put perhaps our, our tithe, our regular offering in the baskets as they go by, Lord, there's more to it than that. We would this morning again, not for the first time perhaps, but this morning again we would give ourselves to you. Lord, that my life is not for me. My life is for you because you loved me and gave yourself for me that we who now live and have been given new life would live for the one who loved us and died for us. Lord, take then our lives. Take our offerings. Take our efforts. Lord, even in the midst of our failings, take that and by your grace, heal us, strengthen us, have your good hand upon us. Lord, that your grace would be seen in us and through us. And that is what we would tell to the people around us. We would tell something of our own forgiveness. We would tell something of your mercy to us. We would tell something then out of our own experience of your mercy to the people around us. Oh, Lord, use us. Use what we give, but Father, use us and thus be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.